conductive wire And you were so electric I had no say when you came so near And just passed right through me Hey everyone, welcome to Geekdom is Back. Today I am joined by a brand new guest, Erica Schultz, and we are talking about Forgotten Home. Erica, how are you doing today? I am still alive and kicking, and at the rate we're going, that's pretty much the uh, the bar is set at that. Absolutely. And we got connected through a mutual friend on Twitter, and that tends to be how I end up with a lot of new friends. So thank you for being willing to come on the podcast. Well, of course. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And before we get started here, why don't you just introduce yourself to the listeners, let them know a little bit more about you. Well, I am Erica Schultz. I am a creator who's worked on Forgotten Home, which was nominated for Five Ringos. Yay. Uh, this year, um, I am a. I've written Daredevil and Hawkgirl and uh, several other creator-owned stories, uh, Twelve Devils Dancing and M3. I've written for Dynamite, DB, DC, Marvel, Image. Um, I'm also an a writing instructor at the Kubert School, and I am. Uh, I used to be a lettering instructor with Comics Experience. I've pretty much done everything in the sort of cosmic comic wheel you know i've i'm all an editor at mad cave studios uh i've been a background artist uh animator and uh i tend to focus on writing but i've done a little bit of everything certainly sounds like it and congratulations on the nominations thank you so to dive right into the comic this is a comic that is a comicsology original can you walk me through how that happens i know comicsology originals are a little new for most people um comicsology originals are basically um stories that are digital only for until they are uh, are collected as trade paperbacks so they are on Comixology, uh, Kindle Unlimited, Comixology Unlimited, and Prime Reading. Okay. So if you have um, Prime or Kindle Unlimited or Comixology Unlimited, you could actually read any and all Comixology originals for free. Um, so uh, it's basically, you know, Comixology was pretty much at the forefront of digital comics. And they're just doing it again uh, with an originals line. And um, I was, you know, very happy to to be included in it. Yeah. And even if you have Prime, which I want to say a lot of us do at this point, you can yeah. still buy it and support the creators. Forgotten Home is $6.99 on Comixology right now, which is dirt cheap for an entire trade. Yeah, it's uh it's eight issues. So it's I wanna say two hundred and six pages, two hundred and four yes. pages. It's a bit of a beast. Yeah, I was reading through it and I was like, Oh, this is a little longer than I expected because a lot of <laughs> trades fall in sort of the one twenty eight to one sixty ish range, give or take, depending on length of the issues. And typically there's only four to six collected, depending on the length of the story arc. So to get extra content like this, I thought that was a really smart move. And because I am absolutely horrendous at pronouncing people's names, can you introduce us to your collaborators on this comic as well? Uh, sure. Um, Marika Cresta is the uh, line artist. Matt Emmons is the colorist. 
uh, Yisela Ayala worked on um, designing the Janadin, the Royal Janadin uh, gowns and such. Kevin Maher was the uh, logo designer and Natasha Altarici was the uh, cover uh, artist um, for all the interior cover, for all the um, individual issue covers. And Bill Sienkiewicz was the cover artist for the trade paperback. I would have absolutely butchered Bill's last name. So thank you for pronouncing that for me. Now I know no it's problem. one of those things where I always read these people's names and I'm just like, oh my goodness, I am going to destroy this. It happens to the best of us. Don't worry. Yeah. So Forgotten Home, it's a story that starts as kind of this mystery story. You're looking for missing children your main character is, that is not you personally, but Lorraine is a sheriff's deputy and she's on the case for various missing children. And then it turns into something different altogether. And what I love is when people are able to combine genres and do things that maybe you wouldn't necessarily expect because you can write something that's a straight horror story. You can write something that's a straight romance story, but when you combine genres, I think that's when you create something more unique and interesting. Yeah, I mean, when I first started working on it, I've done a lot of work as doing um basically crime fiction. Um, okay. You know, 12 Devils Dancing is horror, but it's also a crime story. M3 is a crime thriller. Um you know, I, I tend to gravitate toward that, but I wanted to not only push myself, but also try and do something a little bit different. So yes, there is this sort of mystery aspect to it, but then there's also this um, urban fantasy aspect that um, I really wanted to get to. So it's, it's funny because when uh, I sent out the first issue um, to some colleagues to get quotes for it, it was like, whoa, I started reading it and I expected A and I totally got B, C, D, E, and F. Yeah. So um, it was a bit of a surprise to a lot of people. And I, I mean, it was a welcome surprise and I was really happy with the, um, you know, with the reception of it. It's always great when you surprise colleagues, too, I imagine, because for you, as ingrained as you have been in the comic book industry, I imagine a lot of your colleagues and friends have read a wide variety of comics at this point. So to be able to surprise those people is when you know you've done something. Yeah, I mean, I was I, I was very thrilled when... Uh, sort of the response was I could not predict what was going to happen. And that was so refreshing. Um, and that, and that really, you know, that was like the kind of moment for me. <laughs> right. Um, because I mean, for me as a, as a viewer, as a watcher, um, I, I tend to not really like shows that are incredibly predictable. And um, I've, if, if I can, you know, basically call out what the dialogue is going to be or <laughs> say, you know, oh, such and such is going to happen, then, you know, it's too easy. And so that's when I sort of like, okay, this is, you know, this isn't challenging me. Um, and so I, I, 
I guess I think that other people think the same way. I could be totally wrong, but um, I try and, and make sure that there are some sort of twists and turns, but also that it has, it, it doesn't come out of nowhere. You know, you want, mm-hmm. you want there to be twists and turns, but you want it to also be rooted in sort of the rules of your world. It's something that has to make sense for the story. Otherwise, it's just going to either lose the readers or fall flat. And what you do really well in Forgotten Home, too, is the world building, because you think the world's going to be one thing. And then there's this whole other world that you have to build up. So for you, what was the process like for doing that? Because Montana is Montana. You can kind of get a general feel for what Montana looks like. (laughs) But when you bring this whole other world into it, it's a whole different ballgame. I looked a lot at, you know, in terms of ideas of what the world would look like, I thought a lot about, you know, medieval um, stories and, you know, that sort of aesthetic. And Marika Cresta really took, you know, any and all Pinterest uh, suggestions and just went crazy. but in terms of like the sociological issues and the social uh, issues of Janata, I sort of just took that from everyday life, you know, on earth, this idea of um, child soldiers or the idea of, you know, the mining and overmining of uh, natural resources. I mean, this is something that's so prevalent um, in, you know, in the world today. So, um, so those parts were kind of easy because it was just, okay, we'll just look at human history over, you know, the course of the last hundred years, you know, from the industrial revolution. And not only do you have child soldiers, you also have this human trafficking aspect because they're taking children from one world and bringing them into theirs so that they could become these soldiers. And it subtly touches on so many different current problems that you almost forget you're in this sort of fantasy world. Yeah. I mean, I find that it's, it's easier to digest things if you, you know, difficult things, if you position it in a fantasy setting and throw in a little magic. Exactly. Um, So it's easier to digest the social aspects that, um, that are brought up because you think, oh, well, that's just a magical world. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't really mean anything, even though it's, you know, quite literally hitting all the same buttons. Um, but I, I, I don't, you know, there's this whole thing in comics where, oh, leave politics out of comics and this and the next thing. If people want to read this as just a fun urban fantasy story, then read it as a fun urban fantasy story. I mean, that's fine. Um, but I would hope that people are at least um, aware and cognizant of the fact that there are specific things that we're talking about. There are, you know, specific uh, social ills that, you know, we mention in the story. And there's a reason behind that. And it, and it was a, it, you know, it was a conscious situation to do so. Absolutely. And it's not like you're bashing people over the head, repeating, hey, pay attention to this and this and this and this. You just create this world with this story that is rooted in reality. But when you toss in the magic, 
it gives it this different element that makes it easier to digest for a lot of people, I think. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to beat anybody over the head with anything, but I also don't want people to be, you know, completely and utterly unaware of situations going on in the world. Yeah, that certainly comes across with the comic, but I think someone can still read it and not feel like, oh, Erica is trying to tell me this very, very specific thing, and she's saying it only to me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, if if somebody wants to think that I'm only speaking to them, then I I (laughs) guess that's okay. It's maybe a little weird, but, you know. Aside from the world building, you also have to do quite a bit of character work with your main characters, especially Lorraine, Joanna, and the Queen. So do you outline like, hey, this character is going to have this personality, they're going to be described this way? Or do you sort of let your artist also play with what the characters are going to look like and it's not strict from the start? In terms of the look of the characters, I usually will give sort of adjectives in the sense that like regal or uh, impetuous and things like that um, to, to, to give them a sense of what a character would look like. But also I tend to have at least um, one to two issues already written before okay. I usually approach an artist. And I'll, you know, when it comes to the way a character looks, I'll say, I pictured this character as being like this, but it doesn't have to be specific. Um, When it comes to uh, Queen Rani and Joanna and, um, and Lorraine, one of the things though that I wanted to make sure is that uh, there was a line in my original description was that they have impossibly silver eyes. So the three of them and, uh, Queen Rani's sister that we see um, early in issue number two, all have these incredibly light silver eyes. So that's that, uh, as well as the mark of the royal, um, the birthmark is, you know, something that was important. But aside from that, it was like, you know, let's, let's see what we can come up with. Let's, let's make it fun. Let's make it relatable. Um, I did want to have uh, Joanna be a young woman of color. Um, and I did want to show a little more diversity in the, in general, in the cast, because it, you know, it is a magical world. You can't tell me that there's, you know, people from, or, or what we would consider, you know, people of all different, you know, races and such. So I wanted to make sure that there was diversity in that way, but I usually will just say, you know, artist choice kind of thing, you know, make this character non-binary or make this, you know, see about making this character a minority or something like that, just to be able to show that, you know, it's not just one thing. I think that's a great way to not only approach the characters, but approach working with an artist as well. I've heard from different creators, you know, some will write super detailed scripts, some will write ones that barely say anything. And it just sort of depends on your connection with the artists. Had you worked with Marika before? Um, I had not. Um, I tend to to write pretty detailed scripts to begin with, but I always allow this leeway of, you know, look, 
if you can communicate, you know, everything that we're trying to communicate in this scene, in this, on this page, if you can do it in fewer panels or you need more panels, feel free. I basically say like, look, it's paced specifically because of X, Y, and Z, but if, if you think it should be done differently, let's have a conversation about it. Um, I try not to, to look at my scripts as an edict, um, more as a, uh, as a guide. I know it depends on, on it all, but see, this is the thing is like when you're working on creator owned, there's a lot more freedom than when you're doing something that is uh, licensed. So like when I was writing Daredevil, you know, there were certain things that I wrote that had to be there because, you know, it's a specific character and, you know, and such. Um, but other times it doesn't have to be like that. So it, it just, you know, creator owned is, is more freeing that way and gives you the opportunity to, um, to be a little more open and a little more collaborative. Whereas when you're working on a licensed piece, you're usually getting some type of mandatory from the client, whether it's the licensor or the editor or whatever, saying you have to do X, Y, and Z. Yeah, it's not like you can go around killing Daredevil if you want. You you need permission to do that. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, that was Daredevil End of Days. A uh, couple, I think it was 2012 or 2013 when that came out. Um, David Mack, Klaus Jansen, Brian Michael Bendis, Bill Sienkiewicz, uh worked on that. Yeah, so with this comic in particular... The main characters are all women, and you have Joanna's dad who has been killed, but she thinks something else happened. Was it intentional that the three main forces in this comic happened to be women? Um, yes, it was. Uh, I wanted to show that strong women can come in different shapes and sizes and very different attitudes. Um I kind of look at this story as three very strong women or two women and one young woman um, trying to find their own way, trying to find their own agency in their own lives and going about it in vastly different ways. You can tell they're all related, too, because it's like they all have the same level of stubbornness almost. Yes, they definitely do. Um, they have a lot of the same, uh, a lot of the same uh, qualities about, and and it's funny because the qualities that they have that they dislike about another one is actually a quality yes. that they themselves have. You know, we talk about how Lorraine is. Lorraine had a very draconian um, upbringing with Ronnie, so Lorraine tries to be like the cool mom and the fun mom. Um, and a little looser when it comes to Joanna at the same time, you know, doing that, Lorraine thinks, oh, well, if I'm nice and sweet and, and the cool mom with my daughter, then she'll never want to run away like I did. Well, that rebellious streak was in you, Lorraine. And it's a little, you know, it's, it's some hubris to think that your daughter wouldn't also want to run away. Exactly. And I don't want to give away too much of the story. I know the single issues have been out for a bit, but the trade came out in June. So maybe some people haven't had a chance to read it or pick it up yet. But what this story has is it has mystery, it has fantasy, it has family tension, ethics, morals, you know, <laughs> you're 
looking at these children who have become soldiers and they've pretty much been brainwashed to think that they are there willingly because they're escaping lives that they didn't necessarily enjoy back in Montana or wherever else they took children from. But then you have Joanna's friend at the beginning and, you know, she has a different perspective than a lot of these kids. So she doesn't end up staying. And I think that was really interesting to see how some of the kids thought over time after having been there for a while. And then you have these two characters who have differing opinions on whether or not they want to stay. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it's funny because you, the grass is always greener, basically, you know, so you have kids that are in situations that are, you know, dangerous, possibly, or even just frustrating. And, you know, kids always want to be in control, but either they're too young to do so, or, you know, their parents are just, you know, very sort of overbearing. So you're always going to have some type of teenager that's going to want to, you know, find their own way. And that's just the nature of being a teenager. I mean, I remember being a 15-year-old brat. Um, <laughs> so I, I kind of wanted to, to follow that um, in the sense that, you know, they all sort of want to find their own way. And, that is how they're so easily taken advantage of um, because you're sort of promising them this idea of, Oh, Hey, like you can totally, you know, call the shots here. You, you you're going to be treated like an adult and you're going to have these fabulous powers. Whereas, you know, Mika, uh, Joanna's friend is more or less kind of put off by that and scared by that. Because she thinks, well, this isn't right. We shouldn't be having these powers. Like, we shouldn't be given this crazy responsibility because we're just kids. Um, and, and Mika's pretty much the only one that really sort of recognizes that. But on the other hand, you have a character like Deco, who was born and raised in Janata. And for him, he has no other frame of reference. You know, his childhood has never been what we would consider a childhood. Um, and he he knows no other life but being a soldier as a child. He's a character I think people can relate to as well, especially, for instance, if someone grew up in a small town and it's sort of this thing they can't really escape. They might want to, but they don't know anything else. And maybe a big city intimidates them. I feel like with his character there were certain threads that you could make to real life and get those connections. And then you have the fact that Lorraine kind of saw what was going to happen in the future, not literally, she didn't literally see what was going to happen, but she had this sort of gut feeling that things weren't going to go well if she stayed. And I didn't even mention yet that they're literally in an all-out war during this whole thing, too. So yes. there are so many moving pieces, but it's sort of the family dynamic that holds it all together. Because without those three characters being related, you'd kind of be like, well, why are they doing this? You know, why do they care so much about, you know, this girl and 
why is this a whole thing to begin with? So that family dynamic really is the core of the story, especially once you hit Janata. And that's important because we also talk about, you know, family by blood and by bond. You know, you have the family dynamic of Lorraine and Joanna and Rani, but you also have, you know, the family dynamic of Trader and Deco and, you know, Deco's family. Um, there's a scene later in the book when we sort of see Deco's true purpose and his mother says, you know, we've been insanely lucky that he has survived every time he's put out on the battlefield. But there are so many people who haven't been as lucky as we have. Um, and, you know, since birth, Lorraine has had a destiny. She has had a, she's been told that this is what you are going to do. Um, and it was never anything that she wanted to do when she was old enough to really learn what it was. And so when she was old enough to be able to say, I'm getting out of here, she did. And, you know, that really caused a huge rift with her mother, obviously, but it also caused a rift with other people that she had a relationship with in Janata. You know, this idea of just, you know, getting out of Dodge and not looking back is great, but you're leaving Carrion in your wake. If and when you ever have to come back, well, guess what? You're going to have to deal with that. And because she kept things hidden from Joanna, it gave Joanna this, I don't want to say excuse, but reason to start not trusting her, basically. Yeah. the re I mean, let's be honest. Teenage girls have resentment for their parents to begin with. But... Um, but really, the fact that Lorraine kept all this information from Joanna just completely um, solidified her resentment, which is where Rani is then able to exploit that and manipulate that. You know, whereas Lorraine wasn't giving Joanna many answers, Rani is the first one to say is, I will tell you anything you want to know about your about your history, about your heritage, about anything. You just ask. Um, and Joanna, who had been so more or less starved for information, is just like, tell me. she literally says, I want to know everything. Tell me everything. Because, you know, whereas Lorraine was keeping that information from Joanna because she was afraid that maybe it would incite her to leave and she also wanted her, you know, wanted to keep her safe. At the same time, all it did was really fuel this sort of you're keeping secrets from me, mom, resentment that is easily manipulated and sort of exploited by the queen the second the queen gets her hands on her. It's so easy when someone is at an impressionable age to accomplish that as well. And the fact that yeah. it makes Joanna blind to what's happening literally right in front of her face too. You're kind of like, okay, can we yeah. use a little common sense? But teenagers, not always rational. So the answer sometimes is yes, sometimes is no. And I love that that comes across in the comic. It's not one of those things where it seems like, oh, you know what? This teenager is kind of a little weird. She doesn't really seem like a teenager. It's like, no, she is a teenage girl. 
that is a fact and it's played perfectly. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot that, you know, teenagers tend to sort of override logic with emotion. And we see that with Joanna where she allows her emotions to get the better of her. But then little by little, she begins to start understanding and realizing, you know, and putting the pieces together. And, you know, you sometimes you watch shows and, and, and as an adult, um, I can watch a show and be like, oh, my God, these kids are idiots. But at the same time, I forget that, yeah, there's plenty of times as a teenager, you're not thinking rationally, whether because you don't have the cognitive ability or you just you're thinking based on instinct and based on um, everything is an emotional uh, decision as opposed to uh, a rational one. And, you know, you could look back on all the, you know, I mean, I'm in my 40s, so I can look back on plenty of stupid teenage mistakes um, <laughs> and say like, wow, if I were me with the knowledge that I have today and I was, you know, that knowledge was back in my head back, you know, 20 plus years ago, I probably wouldn't have gone to that party or I probably wouldn't have, you know, done that or I probably wouldn't have, you know, made that decision. But teenagers don't think like that. And so basically it was, it was sort of Joanna being told no by her mother and then her grandmother telling her yes. And obviously you are going to gravitate toward what you want. So you're gravitating toward that yes. And you're going to believe what that person tells you because the person that you were told to trust has not necessarily been lying to you, but hasn't been forthcoming. So you're automatically suspicious of them. And then there's someone who you just meet and off, you know, the first thing they say is, okay, what do you want to know? I'll give you all the information you want. And it's like, wait, what? <laughs> and sort of the floodgates open. And Joanna's more or less like driven by this idea of, I finally feel like I belong. I don't feel like a freak. I am in my own element. How could my mother keep this, this from me? You know, who does she think she is to keep this from me? She, she got to be a teenager here. Why would she keep that from me? Why would she, she, she be so selfish? You know, completely and utterly not understanding and not really taking in the war and all this other stuff. And it, there's even a moment with um, when Lorraine is speaking with one of the other children who were kidnapped and she says, you know, oh, well, I don't have to go to war if I don't want to, because the queen says I don't have to. And Lorraine says, well, when the bodies start stacking up, we'll see. You know, you'll see how desperate the queen can get. And that's exactly what happens. Queen Rani is basically a chameleon. She will, she's an opportunist, and she will change the rules to fit her ultimate goal. Which then, in a sense, there are no rules. Exactly. So whereas she was so hell-bent on having a purebred heir, you know, a pure-blood heir, she got Joanna, who is half Janadin, half Earth uh, human. So whereas it originally it was like, oh, well, I wanted this pure-blood heir. You didn't get that. Oh, well, I can work with this. 
And okay, so she's not a pure blood heir, she's at least listening to me. So, um, you know, she'll just change the rules to fit whatever she needs it to fit to justify her ultimate end goal. Um, and speaking of resentment, I mean, there's resentment that Joanna has towards Lorraine, but there's also resentment that Rani has towards Lorraine for leaving. Right. Plus, you have the fact that while you almost immediately understand these characters' personalities because of the queen and how manipulative she is, she's more unpredictable. You can kind of predict what a teenage girl is going to do when she wants to rebel and, you know, have this anger towards her mother and you understand why Lorraine left in the first place. So with Lorraine and Joanna, you understand their characters enough to not necessarily predict everything they're going to do, but you understand it more than the queen who just changes the rules as it suits her, basically, like you said. So I love having that one unpredictable character who can turn, you know, the, the plot can take a turn simply because of one thing they say or do. Yeah. And, you know, the queen knows what she's doing and she is i mean she has spent a lot of time on the throne she's been on the throne longer than she should have because the original idea was okay i have this heir lorraine when lorraine comes of age i'm retiring for lack of a better term and uh lorraine can then take over the throne but that didn't happen because lorraine left and Rani was forced to then continue to rule, which let's be honest, she, she wasn't, you know, too upset by that. But at the same time, she had a, she has then allowed that time to give her a different perspective. And she's basically allowed that time to more or less continually convince herself that she was right. Um, and I think, you know, villains always think that they're right. And that, that what they are doing is justified because, you know, well, you, it's always that you don't understand because you haven't had to do what I've had to do. Um, and so, you know, Lorraine takes the moral high ground, for lack of a better term, without fully understanding the situation. And, and we see that sort of, you know, morality play back and forth um, between Lorraine and her mother, between Joanna and Lorraine and Ronnie, between Ronnie and her sister. You know, we see that back and forth of what is right. And to be honest, you know, it's messy. And there's, there's no 100%, you know, it's funny for, for a story that has magic, you can't snap your fingers and make everything better. So it's messy and it's complex. Absolutely. I do want to spend a few minutes talking about the art and the coloring on this, because when it comes to magic, I feel like not only is that something that's hard to draw, but you have to have it come across the page in a way that makes it stand out. So the fact that both Montana and Janata are not super colorful, in a sense, you know, if you go to you know, I live in Colorado now, and you'll just go to some areas and it's just kind of like one color. 
the entire time or, you know, the forest, it's green. <laughs> you have, you know, your greens and browns and not a lot of color popping out. And I think because of that, that allows the magic to stand out even more. Yeah. And and that's that's a really, you know, Matt and Marika did an incredible job when it came to the art because they they really figured how to to take the important stuff and make it pop because that's I mean that's kind of the thing in general like you want all the art to look good you want the backgrounds to look good and the four and and the the figures to look good but what you have to realize is there are decisions that you have to make um in terms of you know a background is exactly that it's a background it is it's going to have word balloons over it and things like that. It has to look good, but it doesn't have to look so good that you're not focusing on, you know, the, the action that's in the foreground. So, you know, Matt was, was new to um, more commercial comics and he really rose to the challenge and Marika had been, had worked on stuff for Marvel and for Lion Forge. So um, I was very lucky to work with her on this. Um, And she really, I mean, her her line work is impeccable and uh, her professionalism is, you know, top notch. And I would kill to work with her again. She's she's working on Dr. Afra for Marvel right now. Um, and I'd kill to work with her again because she's just fantastic. That's amazing. I had been reading Dr. Afra back when it first came out. And that was a fun comic that I need to catch up on. But that aside, I think when you're building your own world, you also have more freedom to play with. Because, for instance, with Marvel, those characters are set in stone for the most part. You have a lot of characters who wear red and blue suits, for instance. You have Captain America, red, white, and blue. You have Captain Marvel, Mm -hmm. you got red and blue. You have Spider-Man, red and blue, unless he's in the black suit. So you have a lot of characters that have not necessarily similar designs, but similar color schemes to where it might be a little harder to make certain characters stand out more in a Marvel comic because of, you know, for instance, if you have a big splash page where there's something breaking out in the Marvel universe, that's going to be a lot to take in. Whereas with Forgotten Home, one, you have fewer characters, even though there is a war going on, there are only a handful that you're really spending more time with. And that allows you to sort of mute the backgrounds a little more and focus on the magic, focus on the action. Whereas, you know, a lot of Marvel and DC comics take place in New York. Busy place. Lots of stuff going on in the background there. Yeah, exactly. And even if it's just buildings, I mean, it's still, it's a lot. Especially Times Square. Yes. I don't think, I don't know if I've ever asked an artist to draw Times Square. I don't think so. Yeah, probably the right move. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want artists to hate me. I mean, I've done background art, so so I get it. You know. (laughs) I, I, I know. I know how, how tedious and frustrating it can be. So uh, so I absolutely get it. Yeah, I just love how everything came together for this. And if you don't mind, I would like to talk about some of the nitty gritty details behind making a comic. Sure. So this is a comicsology original, like we mentioned at the beginning, but it's put out by Vices Press as well. 
Mm -hmm. So how does that work? Is it you went to Vice's Press and then it became a Comixology original? Or did you approach Comixology first and then for the trade paperback, Vice's Press decided to put that out? Um, I am Vice's Press. That answers that. So basically, um, when you do a Comixology original book, when you do any book with Comixology, whether it's Comixology originals or a Comixology submit, you have to put it under a publisher. You have to have a publishing account. Okay. So um, M3 was put out through Vices Press and um, we created a, a publishing arm. I'm, I'm a freelancer, but I'm a company. So we created a, a publishing arm from my company. M3 was put out through that um, Strange Tales, uh, which was a story that I did with, uh, uh, a, in a series of stories that I did with uh, Claire Connolly was put out through that. It's also nominated for a Ringo for Best Anthology. And uh, I've just kept Vices as a company, just in general. So when when I pitched to Comixology Originals, and uh, they said, you know, you need to have a publisher, but oh wait, you already do. So it just sort of fell under that um, under the same umbrella. And did that help speed up the process a little more since you already had that in place? It did. I mean, to be honest, not everybody has to be a business. Uh, a lot of it changes. A lot of it is dependent on what state that you're in. Let's okay. be honest. Yeah. Businesses more or less um, have different advantages in terms of state taxes and such. It's funny because I was literally just talking to my Qbert students about this the other day. So there are a lot of freelancers that are not a business. They are just regular freelancers and, you know, when they get paid for something, the check goes to their name. Whereas when I get paid for something, a check isn't written to Erica Schultz. A check right. is written to the company name. Um, and so you can still be like, you could just call your books like, you know, Deanna's books and that be like the publisher, whatever. Um, and that's fine. For some people, it's literally just in name only. Whereas for me, it actually is like separate bank account and, you know, actual, you know, articles of incorporation and, and registered as a company. It's not just a DBA for you. Yeah, it, it is. It is a DBA, but it's a DBA under an actual company. Got it. So, so depending on what state you're in, I would suggest that if you are thinking about becoming a company, um, I would definitely talk to uh, an accountant who works, who can tell you what the benefits are for your state. I'm in New Jersey, so at the time that I incorporated it, it was be more beneficial to incorporate rather than to just be a freelancer. But yeah, so I mean, we've put out a couple of things. M3 was basically, we created Vice's Press to put out M3. And um, after that, I just sort of, I never closed it. And then we put out, you know, Strange Tales with Claire. And then when this opportunity came, and they said, oh, well, you know, you need to have a publishing, you know, you sort of need to be a publisher. I'm like, well, I've already done. Um, so I think that the easier part of it was the fact that I had already been through it with M3. I'd been through it with Strange Tales. I'd gone, you know, I've spoken to Diamond. I've gone through the whole rigmarole already that I didn't even have to worry about trying to create anything else. 
Yeah, and there's so many different ways that you can publish comics, too. I've discovered just from talking to you, I recently had Joan O'Diner on, and I had Vida Ayala on. So Mm -hmm. talking to more comic book creators has broadened my knowledge about these behind-the-scenes stuff. And I am a sucker for talking to people about their process, not necessarily because it's something I want to copy, but simply because there's so many ways to do things. Yeah, I mean, there's there's 950 ways that I can name, and then there's an infinite number that I can't name. Right. You know, so every and everybody has a, a different process, and, and certain things work for certain people because certain people have a personality that doesn't work in a, in a certain paradigm, and that's fine. None of it is right. None of it is wrong. It's simply what works for you as an individual. Like I know some people, they have to get up at five o'clock in the morning, every morning, write for an hour and a half, you know, get your coffee shower, whatever, then go to work. Some people don't work really well at five o'clock in the morning. Some people do their best work at 11 o'clock at night. So obviously that paradigm isn't going to work for them. Basically, I mean, I teach a specific process uh, in my classes at the Kubert School. And what I tell the students is, look, you know, this may or may not work for you, but you don't really have a process, so at least this will give you um, a starting point. This will give you a frame of reference. Well, Erica, I think we can wrap up on one final note here. Is there one piece of advice you would give to anyone who is either looking to create comics or just create anything that they're passionate about? I would say not to put too much pressure on yourself. There is this sort of mindset that if you're not working for a big publisher that you're somehow a failure. Look, making comics is tough. And if you want to make comics for your own stories and to put them out on your own, that's fine. Do that. If you plan on, you know, quitting a day job and becoming a comics creator full time, it is really very difficult. And Um, I always say, if there's anything else in this world that you would enjoy doing, go do that thing. A lot of people who are career comics people, we are in it for the love of it. We are in it for the fact that there is nothing else in the world that we feel that we can do. For me, genuinely, writing is a compulsion. I have to do it. So, I mean, I still, I teach and everything, but if I wasn't mostly writing comics for a living, I I would probably go insane because I spent many years not writing comics for a living and I felt like I was going insane. Exactly. And I absolutely love that advice. Is there anything you want to plug before we go? Well, Forgotten Home is on Comixology. um, And if you're a comics pro, uh, you can vote for Forgotten Home at the Ringo Awards. Um, Also, Strange Tales is also on Comixology. And um, It is up for Ringo for Best Anthology. And I have a new YA series called The Legacy of Mandrake that's coming out in October from Red 5 and Stonebot Comics. So you can uh, keep an eye out for that. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on today to talk about Forgotten Home. It's been a pleasure. You are certainly welcome back on the podcast anytime you'd like. Thank you very much. All right, everyone, that does it for this episode of Welcome to Geekdom. If you want to support the podcast, you can do so through our Patreon. You can sign up for a dollar a month. That'll get you a thank you on the show. $2 a month, you get to pick a topic that myself and a guest will 
discuss on the show. For $5 a month, you can join the Welcome to Geekdom Slack group, where you can talk to myself and various guests who have been on the show. If you want to follow us on socials, you can do so at GeekdomPod on Twitter and at Welcome to Geekdom on Instagram and Facebook. And as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.